Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 31 is Michael Manring, an absolutely incredible electric bassist. He's played on more than 500 recordings. In the 80s, he was the house bassist for the Wyndham Hill New Age label, playing on all the albums by the great Michael Hedges and also with the group Montro. You are listening right now to Thunder Tactics, a track from his first solo album, Unusual Weather, from 1986. We're going to be talking about some of his solo bass work today, including Excuse Me, Mr. Manring from his 2005 album Soliloquy, which is an album completely filled with solo bass songs. We'll also talk about two tracks from his 1994 album Thonk. First, My Three Moons, where he plays three basses at the same time, and then The Enormous Room. It really showcases the mechanisms that have been installed on some of his bases that let him retune the whole thing in real time. We'll conclude by listening to one of his many more recent collaborations, the band Attention Deficit, which had two albums. We're going to listen to a track from the 2001 album Idiot King called Unclear Inarticulate Things. To learn more, check out his website at manthing.com. Say a little bit about how we're going to get from your Wyndham Hill days, where even your solo albums, you're basically writing in a band format to more and more doing just these solo bass things like this first one that we're going to listen to. Excuse me, Mr. Mannering, the whole soliloquy album. The solo bass thing was something I've always wanted to do ever since I first started playing. It's always a passion of mine. I just love the sound of the instrument and I enjoy it in all contexts. But when nobody else is playing, you can really hear all its subtleties. Yeah. And really hear all the stuff that it can do. And to me, that's a thrill. There's something just really thrilling about just the sound of the instrument. It doesn't really even matter who's playing it or if they're playing it particularly well. It's just the instrument just sounds so beautiful. And so I always wanted to do solo stuff. But when I got signed to Wyndham Hill, they were a pretty big company. And that was working in the, you know, in the mainstream of the music business, the outskirts, I suppose, of the mainstream, but still the mainstream. And they were really shy about the idea of of putting out a solo bass record because they really didn't feel that it would have the sales potential that they were looking for. They felt it was really important to do ensemble music. And that was fine with me because I love writing for ensembles and playing with lots of different musicians. And I enjoy that, too. So they let me do one or two solo pieces on my records, but they were definitely against the idea of doing a whole solo record. So I had to wait until the Wyndham Hill era for me had kind of passed, and then I was able to do an all-solo bass record finally. So do you have anything in particular to say to introduce Excuse Me, Mr. Mannering, about the techniques that we're using here before we play the whole thing for him and then talk more in depth? Yeah, actually, this was my attempt to write something pretty straightforward. (laughs) Usually when I write for solo bass, I think it comes across as pretty bizarre. I use lots of different unusual tunings and some different techniques and sometimes some unusual processing. I think sometimes for listeners, that ends up just kind of being weird, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
But in this case, I wanted to write something in standard tuning that was kind of a little bit more straightforward. And I suppose the only really unusual thing about this piece is I do tend to use a lot of different tunings. And in fact, I have machines on my instruments that allow me to change the tuning while I'm playing. And so I did do a little bit of that in this piece, but only on one string. So hopefully it wouldn't be too (laughs) off-putting in that way. So yeah, I do a little bit of dynamic tuning where I'm changing the pitch of the string as I'm playing as part of the music. To get to those low, that the whole thing is bah, bah, is based on E, but then you want to get lower than that to look. I just watched you on a video of you doing this. So it looks like that's where you're doing the tune down is to get down to the notes below that. It's uh, standard tuning and I'm using the E. I have the hip shot mechanism on the E string and you can set that to many different intervals. In this case, I set it to go down to a B, so that would be the standard B on a five-string bass, and then back up to the E, and I'm using that in rhythm as part of the composition. All right.
So the immediate obvious cool thing that one of the techniques that you're showing off here is your rhythmic technique. I watched a video of you demonstrating. Seems like most of your interviews you do, at least that I've seen, with instrument in hand. If you feel like picking up an instrument at some point here, that's fine with me. But seeing you do just a purely rhythmic thing, like you were talking about different what African drum techniques and kind of how you're doing this with your hand. So this is sort of, you've got the straightforward, the bomb, bomb, sort of what a, what a bass is supposed to be doing in the world of funk bass or something. You're holding down that as the rhythm part and then doing sort of a call and response between that and all the high harmonics and the main melodies and things. However, you're building in drums as well to this straight ahead low bass part. So that's mostly pulling up with the various fingers of your right hand, mostly, it looked like, to get the fast things. Yeah. Geez, maybe I will get a bass. One of the things I really love about the bass is its versatility. There are just so many sounds that it makes. There's just so much color in the instrument. And that's what's kept me fascinated all these years. There's all the standard stuff that we all do with bass, which is awesome and wonderful and I love. But there's all this kind of other stuff that you don't hear as much. One of the interesting things about the bass is that it's almost a percussion instrument. And really, it's always been played that way. You can go back all the way to the original acoustic bassists who started replacing tubas in traditional jazz music in New Orleans. And even they started developing these kind of slap techniques on the bass. And you can go back further than that, if you like. There are recordings you can hear from places in Africa. The ones I've heard tend to be more East African than West African, where you swear you were listening to Cecil McBee or Charlie Mingus. They're playing a trough zither or um, some other instrument. There's a really deep, long tradition of treating instruments like this very rhythmically, very almost as a percussion instrument. And of course, with the bass guitar, Larry Graham invented the slap bass style that we all know and, and either love or loathe or <laughs> a little of both, depending on who you're talking to. But it is a, an important part of playing the instrument. And I see that as a continuum of this single idea. But in my conception, that's far from the end of the story. To me, this concept is just beginning. We've just looked at a few cool ways to do that, and there are many, many more. Basically, with this instrument, anytime you mute the string in any way with either hand and strike it, you get kind of an interesting sound. Here, I'll hold my left hand over the strings pretty high up, like over the pickup, and I pluck with my right hand, and I get these different kind of kind of wood blocky sounds almost, which are really interesting sounds and, and can be very useful. And different ways I strike the string with my right hand will give different kind of color variations on that concept. So if I strike it hard with my thumb, get kind of a thumpy sound. And I can have a little bit of tone in there. You can hear a little bit of tone in the sound or none at all if I really mute hard. And if I move the other way, if I use the other side of my thumb or my fingers so that I get nail on the string, I get kind of a sharper attack. So here's the finger, the flesh of the finger, and here's the nail. And I can do that with all five fingers on my right hand. Right. So just doing those in rapid succession with all the fingers, playing it as one would run fingers over a piano, but doing that all as 
pull-offs or, you know, pulling up. What's the opposite of when you, is there a technical name when you're doing funk bass? I've done these things, but uh-huh. you hit down with your thumb. So is there uh-huh. a technical name for that? We can default to Larry Graham's nomenclature for this since he basically invented the technique or, you know, I suppose that's arguable, but we'll just go with that for now. He calls the thumb thing you do a thump. Okay. And then what is the pull with the finger where you're actually... He calls that a pluck. Okay. So, well, that would make sense. Sometimes he calls the technique thumping and plucking. So that's the standard technique. So looking at that and trying to see what else we can add to that vocabulary, the trick is to build up rhythmic cells. So if I take... Here's a sound of muting the strings and hitting the strings with my left hand. Very high kind of, almost like a really high snare drum kind of sound. And muting the string and just plucking it with my thumb. Gets that kind of thumpy sound. And then if I pluck the string with my fingernail, another kind of plucky sound. So if I put those together, here's the thumb, and here's the left hand, and here's that plucky kind of sound. I can do a little triplet. And that happens to be a very comfortable motion. So I can kind of do it over and over. And so right away, it begins to have a little kind of rhythmic character to it. So that becomes a cell that I can use to generate different kinds of rhythms. And then it's really just a matter of figuring out what kinds of cells like that work and how I can put them together in different ways to generate a real rhythm. And hopefully you can do something interesting without even before you even start thinking about pitches, before you even start thinking about notes, you can kind of work with this to create little sets of rhythms, something like. And so on. And then adding pitches in that makes things even gives you an additional level to work with. So this piece is kind of using these techniques, using the rhythmic techniques kind of along with pitch techniques to, you know, try to generate some music that sounds relatively complete. Now, have there been ones, certainly you've done albums where you overdubbed yourself doing more than one part, the sort of obvious route to go like, okay, I've got this percussive technique to use on the bass. I've got the more traditional bass technique to use on the bass. I've got trebly techniques to use on the bass to just sort of overdub them as if one were layering a typical rock or jazz combo. But it seems like you kind of like to do it all at the same time, (laughs) at least in this song, to be able to flesh them together so that you're holding down the top and the bottom and the rhythm. Is that just the challenge of, I'm going to do this as a solo bass piece, or that there's something aesthetically superior to doing it that way than layering it? (laughs) Really, I wish I had a deep philosophical answer for it, but it's really just because I like the sound. Uh Uh-huh. I sometimes do things layering, and I will do it that way if I think it sounds better. <laughs> and I do it solo if I think that sounds better. I was almost more thinking it a more technical answer, that some of these percussive techniques, it seems that they rely on how it's being amplified, how well it comes off, that we just heard how it doesn't sound like the recording when you're just playing into a single mic. But I know you have, what, extra pickups and on different parts of the bass, that, so you've got one up by the neck and you've got one down at the bottom and then one on each string. How do those things feed into being able to expand the tonal range so that when you do some percussive thing that, you know, might not be audible on a bass normally amplified, but you've got this extra pickup. I mean, is that one of the things that you're playing with here? No, on this piece, it's using straightforward electronics. As I say, this is my attempt to try to be normal. 
<laughs> Maybe it's not succeeding, <laughs> but there it is. So yeah, this is straightforward electronics. I did on this one record with microphones in addition. When I record okay. solo bass pieces, I generally use microphones as well on the instrument, not on the amplifier, but on the instrument itself. Yeah, that's exactly what I had in mind, that these things that by the time it gets to an amplifier or by the default setting, then it is sort of selected out certain tones in a way that then you would have to correct either with EQ or just, as you're saying, using a separate mic to bypass the amp altogether. Yeah, the microphone part of it is extremely subtle, and most people can't tell that I'm using it. So for this one, it's really just straightforward, regular kind of pickup stuff. I do do lots of different kinds of ways of amplifying the instrument, but in this piece, not so much. It's really just how the instrument sounds. Kind of mentioning the microphone thing, just more for full disclosure kind of aspect of things. It's not completely 100% normal, but for the most part, it is. Well, I know you were saying in another interview, one of the reasons that you went to the auto-tuning thing is because you were doing manual tuning at the time. But when you're playing live in so many different situations, I mean, I know I've been on stage playing bass and like all I can hear is a low wash so that I can't even tell if I'm playing the right note or not. I really, especially playing with an ensemble, but even by yourself, depending on the room and the, the way it's amplified, it can be a, a little tricky to hear everything. And if part of the point of the song is to be able to convey certain tones, how do you deal with that in the varied, you just... Bring your own PA so you can standardize it. I wish. I wish I could and would if I could. But actually, I would do it more for artistic reasons than tonal reasons. Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff about amplifying the instrument that I would like to be able to do creatively beyond just the fidelity aspects of it. But that's a little out of my pay grade, as they say. It can be a bit of a problem amplifying the bass, but it's actually kind of harder in a group. It may sound kind of odd, but it's actually harder to deal with that when you're playing in an ensemble than when you're playing solo. When I'm playing solo, it's kind of rare to have a really big problem getting the right sound. The sound checks usually go super fast and things usually go pretty well. I wish I could say there was a magic secret to that, but if there is, I would say it's mostly getting stuff out of the way. The instrument sounds just lovely on its own, and doing as little to it as you can usually is what works best. So it's a matter of just keeping things as simple as will work. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that completely makes sense. So I've got this PV amplifier that I bought in high school. And I remember, you know, when I was going to college playing my first bands and it's got like a full 10 band EQ on it and chorus. And I would just like as an initial instinct, like I want to shape the sound to each song. And so like I will have a different setting to each song, but then playing with a group, it was hard enough to make things cut through or it just ended up not being worth it so that you know, somebody at the time told me, no, really with bass, just plug into like a big old speaker and that has a lot of low end. And that's sort of a compromise, at least in my case, it was a matter of over time feeling like these fine details that I was trying to get into the shape of the bass sound, especially playing with a group, it just, it wouldn't cut through appropriately or, you know, it was better just to have something simpler and showing off the natural tone of the instrument. Yeah, we're in a little bit of tricky territory here because, you know, this is an art form. And all the above options can work depending on the situation you're in and the room you're playing in or the recording method you're using. There's so many variables that we can't really come up with hard and fast rules. But, you know, you can kind of point to some general tendencies. And 
overall in the process, it does seem to be the case that if you don't need to do anything to a sound, most people seem to prefer that most of the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's about as definitive a statement you can make about it. But it is an important consideration that EQ, for instance, is often cited this way, that if you can get by with none, then that's best. But if you need some, you know, a little works. And occasionally, in the right circumstance, extreme EQ can be effective as well. So it's trying to come up with a method is a little tricky. It's a matter of using your ears and using your heart and mind and trying to figure out what's going to work best at the moment. Well, that seems a great transition to bringing in our second song, My Three Moons. So you've got three different basses, or in one video I saw four different basses that you're playing mostly just two at a time, having only two hands, but often letting something ring on one bass while then right hand on one, left hand on another, both doing hammer-ons, you know, harmonized lines. And it seemed like you picked those different basses, or at least you can tell one of the things that makes it sound like three basses is that you've got a slightly different tone to each of them. You know, it's a different instrument. Some of them are fretted, some of them are fretless. Help us introduce this thing before we let people witness it. Yeah, here we're on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> this is really weird. Very, very bizarre. So this is a piece I wrote for three different basses, and they're all in different tunings. When I studied with Jacopo Pistorius, he always advised me to, to keep my basses all as similar as possible. He had two Fender jazz basses, a fretted and a fretless. I can't remember if they were the same year even, but they were very, very similar. And that's one piece of advice I probably should have followed, but never did. (laughs) So all my instruments are pretty different. It's helped since I've been with the Zahn company. So almost every bass I play is made by Zahn. So that helps a lot. But as you mentioned, these are three different instruments that have, you know, different pickups and different pickup configurations and different electronics and different woods, so they do sound different.
I got into this because I've always been interested in making this solo music on the bass and experimenting with how much music I can make at once and what happens when I do that. And one of the things I discovered is, I guess I shouldn't use the word discovered. One of the things I realized is that I can play two different parts simultaneously and have two different things happening, just like you do on a piano, where the left hand maybe does accompaniment and the right hand does melodies. So I often work with that idea and lots of variations on that idea, how I can make those two parts different or begin to merge them so the two parts become less distinct and more working together. So a lot of ideas around this general concept. But with this piece, it was an attempt to really separate out the parts a little bit. And one of the problems I kept having, particularly on one four-string bass, is if I played two things at once, it all kind of mushed together and sounded kind of like one. And so I thought I could actually just play them on two separate instruments, and hopefully that would separate out the sound a little bit. And I realized also, since it's two different instruments, I could work a little bit electronically as well and pan them separately, use separate effects on them, separate processing on them. The idea opened up a lot of possibilities that seemed really interesting to me as a composer. Yeah, it's just like you're playing a harp that you've got all these strings to choose from and that you can set each one up so that you could do have a different drone tone. It just expands the tonal palette if you're going to play as you do with chords accompanying yourself. I know a lot of your lines, there are no open strings involved, but at least when the third bass is playing, it's a matter of being able to set up some drone effect while you're doing something else, right? To some extent, this is an idea that appealed to me as a composer of, you know, here's this format that I can work with. Just like you might be interested in composing for a string quartet or a chorus ensemble or a solo ukulele. These are different formats you can write for, and each of them has their possibilities they present and, and maybe limitations, if you want to think of it that way, although I don't always. And to me, this idea of writing for three basses played by one person just seemed like a really exciting concept. I would say it's a little different from the harp in that it is three different instruments. So it's a little more like playing a concert organ where you can set it up to do different sounds or like the progressive keyboardists who play the Keith Emerson approach where you play different keyboard with each hand. Sort of a little more like that, I would say, in general. Well, just being able to do all these different harmonics chords like doing normally on bass i'll hit one harmonic that's an extra little treat you hit that high little note in there or maybe do two on the neighboring strings so you've got your g and your d but like the fact that you're just playing chords with harmonics like somebody with a full guitar would be playing chords that's certainly one of the special aspects of it yeah it's really neat to suddenly have 12 strings instead of just four and thinking about all the things you can do there obviously thinking about the different tunings i can use. And I did do a little bit of dynamic tuning in this. My hyper bass is the low strings tuned to G, and at one point I take it down to F. Ah. And, you know, just lots of different possibilities to work with there. You mentioned drones. I don't think of it so much as drony, but with a piece like this, you know, I'm going to be wanting to take advantage of the open strings. So I'm thinking a lot about how the tonalities are going to work in that concept. Right, right. And of course, it's not even, it's a lot of it is with one hand, you're kind of keeping a bass line. There you're doing eighth notes on something. So it's not a matter of always plucking an open string and then moving to another instrument. Right. So I would say the main thematic concept compositionally in this piece is polyrhythm. And that being mostly three against four. 
So most of it's built around three against four polyrhythms and then moving those polyrhythms in different ways, both harmonically and rhythmically. So you're saying you're playing polyrhythms, even with the thing that make, it makes me think of is the Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown theme, of course. <laughs> the, the very do 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 But so what you're doing, a three-pattern thing in one hand and a four-note thing in the other hand, is that what, what exactly is going on there? So the subdivision is the same. So I tend not to be playing three in the space of four, yeah, but right. I'm playing three notes in one hand while I'm playing four in the other. So the downbeat cycles around there, and then I'm moving that around in different ways. All right, so it's not the things that drummers do just to challenge themselves. I'm going to do a quintuple with one hand while I'm doing a triplet with the other hand. It's not that. It's just a matter of the rhythmic gestures are three note or four notes long, and after they cycle around enough times, then they're lined back up. Mostly for this piece, it's that. I, uh-huh. I do the other as well. And in the big picture, these two things we're talking about are actually the same. Because if you take the downbeats of those two cross rhythms, if you want to call them that, then they end up being polyrhythm like you described. But I don't know how, how technical you want to get about it. <laughs> as technical as we want to get. <laughs> to me, one of the really fun things about this piece is just working through all these different rhythms, cycling around it in different ways, and then moving those cycles around through different tonalities at the same time. So there's a few places where I'm doing one rhythm with the right hand, one rhythm with the left hand, and then moving through tonalities at a different pace as well. So it kind of expands the brain a little bit. And it's a really cool feeling when you do it. A piece I really love to perform because of that. It just feels wonderful. Well, you get to have audience participation that you have somebody come up and hold the third bass. Yeah. (laughs) Or fourth bass, as the case may be, as opposed to having Zahn make you a giant triple bass rack that can be hanging off you at the same time. That would be lovely, but there's no way I could afford it or afford to bring it on the road with me. So many of these solutions that I come up with are strictly out of economic necessity. (laughs) And in fact, I don't perform this piece very much anymore because I have to take a little bit of extra gear with me to pull it off. Sure. Yeah. Well, if your Zon, if your hyper bass can do so much that you can instantly switch it to vastly different tunings and don't have to switch instruments so much, then uh, yeah, taking your whole arsenal on the road seems a little excessive for one song. I still usually take all three basses with me. Okay. Yeah, because I think that's important. When people hear that you're going to be playing solo bass, a whole concert of solo bass, I think their initial concern is that it's going to be monotonous. So I'm always kind of looking for ways to make people feel better about that. And I think switching instruments really helps. I think for a lot of people, just, you know, oh, he picked up a different instrument that looks different. It's a different color. I think that makes people feel somewhat a little bit more comfortable about listening to a whole evening of solo bass. I think I saw a video also of you using looping on one song. Maybe it was a mostly improvised song. I can't remember. That's something you occasionally do. So I can, you can set down the main thing and then keep that going. Obviously, you can't quarterly vary the structure all over the place quite as much if you're doing that. I got really into looping when it first came out. Lexicon had one of the first commercially available devices that was called a looper that was intended for loop, the Lexicon Jam Man. And I was an endorser for them. And one of the things I loved about the Jam Man is that you could sync them together just with MIDI. So it allowed you to expand just from what you were just talking about. One of the problems with looping, at least from my perspective, is that it kind of tends to make you want to play something and then that just loops over and over and then you just kind of build on top of it. And there's nothing wrong with that and I enjoy doing that, but I kind of wanted to try to do a little bit more with it. And so when the Jam Man, the Lexicon Jam Man came out with this 
syncing capability, I realized I could use one gem man to clock the other. So that allowed me to do pieces where I was moving through different sections and I could actually play through cover tunes, tunes that other people had written and do the A section, B section and C section, whatever needed to be done and not just play one thing that went over and over. So I got really interested in that when it first came out. But again, you know, it's a lot of gear to bring on the road and and the airlines don't look kindly on that. Let me make sure I understand. So it's instead of looping one, now I'm going to do the percussion part. I think this is the one I saw. I'm doing the percussion part and it establishes and then you play a bass part over it and then you're free to then put various treble things, not all of which are added to the eternal loop. Some of them just happen once and they move along. So with using two of these, syncing each other, it just lets you do basically that, but you can also have an A section, a B section, a C section, and then go back to the A section and it'll still have the things you recorded for the A section, but you're still all recording it on the fly. Is that right? Exactly. And nowadays there are single machines that are designed to do that a little bit more elegantly within one machine. Hmm. But to me, the thing that really was thrilling at that point when the looping came out is that this was the first time you had the ability to do something other than just establish a single loop and let that go over and over and and maybe build on it. So that that was really exciting to me and I I really enjoyed doing that. But I kind of found a limit to how much I wanted to keep working with that stuff. Other ideas started to take my attention more. And so I still do a little bit of looping, but not as much as I did for a while. So this album Thonk, 1994 that My Three Moons was off of. I know there's a couple solo bass pieces. In fact, we're about to play another one off there, The Enormous Room. But then you've also got other musicians joining you. It's never clear to me when I'm hearing something, is that an actual guitarist or is that you doing something, a crazy effect with your bass when you have a solo project like this, as opposed to the group projects? How does your composition work in terms of deciding, okay, now I'm going to add an extra little thing from myself? Or when you invite a guitarist to come in, is it largely you just saying, okay, do something over that? Or do you have something fairly specific in mind? I know this is a very general question. (laughs) Thinking about Thonk in particular. Yeah, I wish I could say there was a definitive method other than all I can say is the most boring thing is that, you know, you just listen and it depends on the piece and you try to make the best decisions you can. I guess if I have a method for composing, it's, you know, it's hard to come up with a way to say it that doesn't sound ridiculously like a white guy from California. But, you know, it's allowing the music to do what it seems to need to do. So generally, an idea will occur. And I'm listening to that idea and trying to think about what it needs to do. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know how, what the mechanics of that. I don't know if that's some subconscious part of my brain or some metaphysical thing happening, some magical part of the universe kicking in. I have no idea. I'm happy with any of those interpretations, but I don't really worry about that. I just kind of follow the process as it goes. And so this idea may feel like it needs to to move in the direction of being an ensemble piece or a solo piece or a duet. And I kind of just follow that and as it goes and, and try to make the best decisions. And I have to say, often it's the case that I need to write a specific piece So I'm doing a record for ensemble and I need to write for that ensemble. And so then I do that. (laughs) So it's much more willful. But that's, I enjoy that as well. So I wish I could say that, you know, I had a, a formula for working these things out and it was all very scientific. 
but really it's just a matter of following the muse, I guess. Well, and these two songs in particular, they're so catchy. Like you've got so many nice little catchy riffs in here that inevitably, I guess I'm contrasting that with, so I heard you with one of your units do a cover of Chick Corea's 500 Miles High, mm. which when you take, or no, this was, uh, this was from one of your solo albums. Yes. When you take a popular song but you have Purple Haze or something like that on one of your... One of your... Yeah, I, I did both those pieces. Okay. Were solo pieces from Drastic Measures, yeah. Right, right, okay. So when you do Purple Haze or something like that, that's sort of a really catchy thing and then do a jazz deconstruction of it, the thing that kind of jumps out is, oh, you've got this hook that's from this popular thing. And so, excuse me, Mr. Mannering and My Three Moons, like they have those hooks. I was a little more, like when I just went back to the Chick Corea version of 500 Miles High, it's coming from a very different melodic place. Let's put it that way, such that then transposing it to a different thing, like it's not even giant steps or something. There's this head that you could then just hum I don't know. I guess there's these different traditions of this is kind of one of the things that's fascinated me about jazz, where you're mixing up. You know, I sort of think it's quintessential that Miles Davis doing Someday My Prince Will Come or what, you know, they did many, many popular songs like that where they would take this earworm, but then build this imposing jazz fortification sort of around it mm. through the process of elaboration. And so by the time we get to Chick Corea, we're almost starting so that the main melody is something that at least personally, I have to hear seven times before like it actually, it's not an earworm in the way that it seems to me like you're coming from, even though you've got so much jazz packed into your background and your technique, but you've got something more primal here that's generating your main riffs for at least these two songs. Yeah. Again, you know, with playing bass and solo bass in particular, one of the concerns, or I don't know, maybe the main concern, at least in the sense of relating to people, of communicating with people, is this idea that this is something very foreign and it's not going to make sense to them and they're going to be bored by it. So if I can find ways to do something that kind of helps to extend a hand and say, hey, here's something that maybe, you know, you might find interesting. I write a lot of music that has no hooks and is really kind of a difficult listen. And I often don't tend to release that music because I just don't think people will enjoy it as much. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's something that people want to hear, I'm glad to play it for them. But I'm interested in the idea of people enjoying hearing the bass. That's an appealing idea to me. So I look for ways to do that. And when I have written something that I think people will enjoy, then I I generally share that. And if I have something that I like, but I kind of don't think that maybe people will enjoy it so much, then often I'll keep that to myself or only play it very rarely. So that's part of that process. I don't really have a preference for, well, I I guess that's not true. I guess that's not true. I guess my preference is for music that's both listenable and deep. We kind of had a branching of music in the 20th century where music kind of split into two parts, kind of academic, very deep music and more listenable pop music. When you think about composers in the past, through Beethoven even, and I guess even through Mahler and Brahms. They had to write music that ordinary people would enjoy, but at the same time, we're trying to write music that was great art, and we're doing so. So if you go go to listen to a performance of Don Giovanni, you're hearing catchy, wonderful music that you can go away humming. At the same time, you're being exposed to something that's structurally brilliant, that's probably innovative in, in many different ways, that is using resources in very beautiful, inventive ways, is relating to other things in the culture in very powerful ways. 
so it's just working on a whole lot of levels, one of those being that it's enjoyable. We kind of split off from that in the 20th century, as I mentioned, and we developed these two camps of purely academic music that feels no responsibility whatsoever to pander to an audience, and then purely pop music that feels no responsibility whatsoever to the artistic aspects of music. It's just about appealing to people and making a lot of money. And my personal preference is, I would say, is toward the older method of music that really kind of is working a little bit in both worlds. Music like that is never going to be as popular. Well, I shouldn't say never, but unlikely to be as popular as straightforward pop music is going to be. But there's something really beautiful, I think, about having these different layers that art can work on. And so I like working in that mode when I can. Does that make sense? Yes, and it sounds like you're giving a great introduction to our third song, The Enormous Room, also from Thonk, because this is just a beautiful, you don't have to have any musical education at all to enjoy this. It is just so relaxing, but you've got more music theory. You've got more jazz chords. You have more Pat Metheny-esque gestures in here pushed into this song than in either of the other ones. I had noted for My Three Moons, it had a very classical sounding progression that is just through the chords so that you don't even notice that there's something challenging happen. The Enormous Room seems a little different in that there are these bubblings of some unexpected chords, but that just strike me as partly because of the tone you're using. The fact that you're playing on this bass, which, as you say, has a wonderful tone to it, just open up this new, oh, this is this new pretty thing that I didn't realize was possible or would come out of this instrument at this time. Do you have any introductory words to, about that song? Well, thank you. That's really nice. And I'm so thrilled and so happy and so humbled to hear that you can just listen to it and enjoy it. Because that really was my goal. The composition is actually pretty academic, actually. But that was my goal is to have the composition of it exist at a level where you can go into that and listen that way if you want. But you don't have to. You can just hear a pretty piece of music. The concept behind this piece is this was written on my hyperbass, which has the most retuning mechanisms on it of any instrument that I own. And at the time, it was about trying to see what I could do with these retuning mechanisms and how I could work with them in the concept within a composition. And so what's happening is that this composition is thematically based. There are some motives that I'm using and then moving them around in, in lots of different ways and presenting the, the motives in lots of different perspectives. So if you want to listen that way, you, you certainly can. Most of that you can just hear by listening. Some of it's a little bit more kind of an inside joke for someone who might actually play bass where I'm playing the motive, one point, then I'll play the same motive, but I change the tuning. So it's it has a different color. You might not catch that unless you really study. Visually, perhaps. I mean, I, I got to say, all, the, all these things, folks should definitely go look up on YouTube, you doing these, because it adds an extra point of interest that seems like it's a really great, yes, you can sit back and enjoy the music, but having a theatrical aspect, which in, in this case is especially strong on this song. Well, I don't know how compared to using three or four basses at the same time, that's pretty <laughs> damn theatrical as well. Uh, or doing these crazy percussive things. Yes, you definitely have... A a great way to suck new viewers into what you're doing, that you could show up at a, at a venue with people that have not heard of you and, and they'll be astounded, you know, at least as a first step. Maybe then they'll actually get the songs in their heads after they listen to them a few times. But having a, a hook for the first listen seems a pretty key part of it. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that. The visual aspect of my music, I always feel terrible about because I don't really feel like... <laughs> 
I'm doing anything visually worthwhile at all. But I suppose, you know, it is something to watch somebody play three or four basses at once or change their tuning all the time. So I'm glad to hear that's interesting and, and not just tedious. I'd be perfectly happy if, if I could just play and people would have something nice to look at. <laughs> and I've done a few shows working with a video artist and always am happy there that people won't have to just look at me for the whole time. That's really nice to hear that maybe there's something visually appealing about it. And it's not just like making sausage where you want to enjoy the end result, but you want to don't, don't want to see how it's made. <laughs> Thank you.
Yeah. So say a little more about how those particular themes get hooked together and the flurry of harmonics that you've got in some places. Yeah, it's really just, I mean, in a way, this is more an old style of composing. So I'm thinking in some ways like a composer from the 18th century would, Mm -hmm. or even 17th century, really, where you have motives and you're presenting them in, in different ways. The kind of standard form that people might be aware of with this way of composing is theme and variations, where you'd present a theme and then the variations of it. This isn't quite that. It's more just variations <laughs> where I'm working with kind of small motives and presenting those in lots of different ways. So I might, for instance, there's that first melody, do, 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 which is kind of the main motive in the piece. And so I'm presenting that first with one set of harmony and then a different set of harmony behind it. And I'm presenting that in diatonic transpositions of that and then breaking it into parts and looking at the different parts. I'm, I'm changing the rhythm of it in various ways. So really it's how a classical composer thinks, but trying to do that in a more contemporary concept and all related to this idea of, hey, I have this instrument on which I can change the tuning. And so what does that mean with this? So, you know, what happens when I present the motive in this tuning? Oh, well, then I can play these harmonics and I can move these harmonics in this way to generate a new set of harmony for this motive. Or if I change the tuning in this way, then some of the notes from the motive can be played with harmonics. Then I can move those and then I can connect those to what I was doing earlier with the moving harmonics in the harmony and so on. Just a lot of fun, interesting things to work through. Well, just being able to do a melodic swoop that purely, you know, the change in tone is taking place because you're flicking one of these switches, you know, that you're doing something that sounds qualitatively different than if you're just swooping with your fingers. Ah, exactly. Thanks for mentioning that because I didn't think of that. One of the things when we designed this hybrid bass, I didn't realize how much I would like the sound of the tunings moving. Yeah. I thought I might just be, you know, playing in one tuning for a while, then kind of switching the tuning and playing in another tuning. But I really just, from the very beginning, just loved the sound of these moving tunings. It's a sound you don't hear very much in music. I think maybe on steel guitar sometimes you hear that. But other than that, it's something you don't hear very much. And so I just really liked that sound. And, and so a lot of this piece is about that. You know, it's about taking advantage of creating melodies and harmonic motion and to some extent even voice leading in the harmony through the moving the, the tunings, which is just kind of a lovely sound that, you know, doesn't sound radically different, but it sounds a little different from doing it any other way. Where are you at in terms of the progression of these? Have you reached a limit in terms of the solo bass? <laughs> Or what new things are you hatching? For instance, with this detuning thing, it's interesting to me that it almost sounded, you know, looking at you play it, that the writing of it was very much dependent on the technology of this Zon bass of being able to do this detuning. Would you characterize it more as having this ability frees you up to then play what is in your imagination? Or is it a combination so that it's, there's plenty of things that I write either in my head or write with my hands, right? Guitar riffs that I'll stumble on that, wow, that kind of sounds interesting with my hands doing it. And so is it that every time you have one of these new techniques, that sort of writes a bunch of songs for you, or at least kind of gives you a tool to churn out ideas? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, such a great question. I can't even answer it because... I mean, it's the question that's important. So you're right. Sometimes in the case of The Enormous Room, that is a piece for that instrument. Mm -hmm. I could play it on a piano 
but it wouldn't be the same piece to me because it's the whole concept of it is, you know, what this instrument does with that particular stuff. Now, that's one way of writing. It's no better or worse than writing music in your head and it works on whatever instrument you play it on. So Bach wrote that way. He wrote music all in his head and, and a lot of pieces. In fact, if he ran out of time and needed a new piece, you know, a new concerto for clarinet, he would just use a concerto he had already written for violin. That's the way he thought. Other composers write specifically for instruments. And both ways are interesting and fun. And sometimes it's a combination of the two. And you're right. Sometimes a new instrument will generate ideas. All these things are possible. But the more I talk, the less interesting I'm making it because your question was way more interesting than the answer. <laughs> I guess to extend that, that was really what I was trying to get at with my question about how you're writing for other people when you have additional, you know, I can see like, okay, now I'm working with this new guitarist and it's one of my solo albums. So it's not just going to be, you know, the three of us in the trio are just going to get in and play off each other and do the improvisational jazz thing. It's I, I have another person that I can use as a tool in much of the same way that I might use. So there've been, I don't know, in my case, it might be that I end up doing a lot of, just because i a less of a purist, that I do lots of punching in. Why don't you do that one little swoop with the wah pedal here? And, you know, so we'll do two measures that way and sort of treat the studio and the other person as extensions of my own clumsy fingers. It, you know, they enabled me to do things that I could not otherwise do. Can you say a little more about sort of how your relationship to the different instruments and having the instruments produce the music and having other people in the room there, since we're getting toward our fourth song with an actual trio. Yeah, it really is an interesting process mm -hmm. and how thrilling it is to have these different opportunities. When you work with another person, you're working with a different mind, somebody who's going to think completely differently from how you think. It's kind of interesting. There are a lot of different thoughts here. I mean, Miles Davis got to the point where he wrote as little as possible. Sure. Just got interesting people together and told them a few things and just let them do what they were going to do. Made amazing music. Duke Ellington used to write for specific people. So he, he always had a big band. And if somebody left, he would rewrite the parts. So if this you know second alto player left the band, he would rewrite the parts for the new person because it wasn't the same to him. So yeah, these are really interesting ideas. When you're working with different people, you want to think about what they can bring to the table. Sometimes it can be interesting to work counter to what common sense might be. So you have somebody coming in to say, who's a great heavy metal guitarist, write something for acoustic guitar and give them something very gentle to play and see what happens. You know, maybe it'll be a disaster, but maybe it'll work. Or just do the opposite. Write something that you think is perfect for them or write as little as possible, like Miles Davis did, and, and just let them do what they're doing. But this last piece we're going to play, I think, it may be a good example of that. Of the letting be part? How one way of that process can unfold. I guess one other thing we should say is there are certain pieces come to mind where you've got a part and you just know who has to play that part <laughs> and you just hope you can afford to hire them to do it. You've probably had that experience yourself where you've got a melody and you just think, oh yeah, so-and-so just has got to play this. There's nobody else that can do it justice. So all these things can happen. They're all good. It's really interesting working a lot as a soloist and then working with other people. I wouldn't want to do all one or the other. When I place, like if I do nothing but solo music for a month, I don't have any input. There's something you miss of that input from other people because it's always surprising what other people 
will come up with and the choices they will make. That was the question that your last the soliloquy is for 2005 was your all bass solos album. Have there been subsequent bass solos or just not enough to make an album out of them? Or that's a while to go without a... It is. Yeah, no, it's, it just hasn't been enough time, actually. <laughs> to do the solo work always gets pushed to the back burner because if I'm working with somebody else, that's a bird in the hand. And so the solo work always takes the longest because it's I always challenge myself hardest with the solo stuff. And I just have very little time to do it because there's so many other projects going on. So I have a ton of new solo music. In fact, more than enough for a whole new record, probably enough for two new records. Are you doing some of that with a three below? So I got in touch with you through Trey Gunn because I know you've been doing the three bassist tour where sometimes, am I right, that sometimes you're playing together, but then you're also just doing some of these solo tunes and perhaps more recent things of that sort? Exactly. Although with things being the way they are with YouTube and the internet, I tend not to play the new stuff out as much as I used to. Because, you know, I, I'm not sure about the pieces, you know, kind of reluctant to put things out until I feel pretty confident about them. Because, you know, they may end up being <laughs> very widely distributed. <laughs> so all three of these songs, I mean, they're so, first the, the catchy themes and then the, the classical approach to the progress of the song. Are they pretty much set? Like I noticed I saw a 2007 live version of Excuse Me, Mr. Manring. It seemed like it was pretty much all the same structure except the intro. Just like when we were in this conversation, you started demonstrating the rhythmic stuff. Obviously, you could go on improvising in the rhythmic mode quite a long time. And so that's kind of what you were doing some of that in this extra long improvisational intro. Is Is there any generalization to be made about at least these three songs and others like them of how much you can change them either over time or from performance to performance. Again, a great concept to bring up. And again, <laughs> whatever works at the time. is the... Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. One of the things I love about doing this is as a composer, how much does improvisation figure into this? What can I do with improvisation? What can I do solo improvisation wise? Because when you're playing music solo, you don't have to stick to the form or the chords or even the tune. You can just go completely anywhere you want. So there's always that possibility. And when to do that, when to not do that, how much is too much? These are all questions that I enjoy asking myself. And sometimes when I completely fail, it's a better experience than when I do it exactly the way I had planned. All these options (laughs) come into play. With these pieces, excuse me, Mr. Mannering really wants to be more and more improvised. These days, I find myself playing just a few snippets of it, mostly, and just spending the rest of the time (laughs) goofing around. The other pieces, My Three Moons, I never really felt like I could improvise that much on it. And probably put out somebody's eye or something if you're improvising. Yeah, there's some I could do on it, but it just, I don't know, never felt quite right. And The Enormous Room, I never found a path for improvisation with that that really felt that good to me. So I often find myself starting to improvise a little on it and then just kind of going back to the through composed version. And again, you know, all these decisions are not made analytically necessarily. They're just kind of happening and it seems to be the right thing to do. So, uh, you know, I'm really into this idea of where the improvisation fits in, if at all, and being okay with any of the, the available options. It can happen. All right. So shifting us to our final topic here, this again with the many, of course, you've done 
seems like every possible sort of arrangement, you know, been just the bass player in a band, you know, where other people are writing things and we're on all those Michael Hedges albums. And then also, I haven't heard this first band, however, a prog band. Was that kind of a group written 20 minute instrumentals like one would picture from a 70s prog band yeah i actually wasn't in however i don't know how oh okay it got on your wikipedia page what was the the name of the first band then i was friends with those guys and and, um played with them in different configurations but i didn't wasn't actually in however amazing band um but yeah they were a prog band but i think whoever was writing that bio was thinking it was a band i played in called natural bridge okay was an original fusion band, sort of weather reporty kind of uh, Return to Forever E Mahavishnu Orchestra E kind of band that I played in for a few years. And then Montro was that the big Wyndham Hill thing in the eighties? That was a pretty big band. Was that fairly? This is the part. This is the structure. Or was there uh, room to improvise extensively in that band as well? I wasn't really clear. Yeah, there was a lot of room for improv in, in that band. That was a, a collaborative band. So there were four of us and we each tried to present, everybody had equal voice in there. And that was great. Generally, one person would, usually one person would bring in a a composition at a time, but there were a few things that we worked on collaboratively, compositionally, and everybody had a lot of input into how things happened. It was a lot of fun, that band. And then these more recent ones, you've got McGill, Manring, Stevens with Scott McGill and Vic Stevens, which I was watching, you know, where you were doing improvisational works, deconstructions of classic jazz tunes, but like the song that we're about to hear with no fear of distorted electric guitar and other, you know, typically rock sort of gestures. You know, King Crimson, of course, comes to mind as a model of this. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's probably a little confusing because I've played in so many different projects I try to count how many recordings I've been on and lost track about 500. So it's a little confusing. I've kind of done a little of everything. There's something interesting about every one of these different possibilities and ways of working and people to work with. Well, so the one we're going to hear is from Attention Deficit. So this was a stable band in that it had two albums at least. This one is from Idiot King 2001. The song you picked was Unclear, Inarticulate Things. Alex Skolnick, what else was he in? He played in Testament. Okay, all right. And then Tim Alexander from Primus. So say something, This is a pretty varied group there of how this magic came together. And, uh, you know, that you've got a lot of stylistic variations. The one we're going to play is very King Crimson-y. Some of them are more jazz fusion sounding, I suppose, than this in terms of the chord vocabulary. But uh, yeah, say something about the approach of this band or and in, in how the group composition works and that kind of stuff. Yeah, this band was a blast. It was just really wonderful working with those guys. In general, I mean, we were kind of really interested in different ways we could work together. In general, it kind of made sense for us to bring in our part and then let everybody else do their thing. So that's what I did with this piece. I brought in, you know, basically the part that I play in the recording. That's what I brought to the guys and let them do what they wanted. So Alex wrote the melody he plays over the first section of the piece then the piece kind of goes into this quarter note triplet aspect. And Alex didn't feel comfortable writing a melody over that. So I wrote the melody for him over that, which he plays beautifully. And things kind of came together that way. So it's really this way of composing where you kind of bring in an idea, see what happens, and then do some polishing over top of that. Well, I was very excited to hear this whole album and you know, some of the other stuff you were doing in the 90s. With just that, I just, the reason that I had heard of you in the first place is because of the Wyndham Hill thing. And I had heard your first album, Unusual Weather, when I was a teenager. And of course, all that stuff was brought to me by my father, who is 
old enough to be kind of pre-rock and roll. And so this <laughs> this bringing in all this soothing Liz Story and Michael Hedges and, and George Winston, uh, especially the George Winston. And so this was a little atypical, your first solo album for that. It was a little more jazz influence, quite a bit going on there. But there's still, you know, there's the soprano sax and there's the the occasional Pat Metheny-ish oohs and ahs vocal kind of thing. So the fact that you got into this more rock realm uh, was exciting for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I grew up playing all different kinds of music and still enjoy playing all different kinds of music. So it's all good, as they say. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for, for your interest and for inviting me to be involved. All right, here are unclear, inarticulate things again from Attention Deficit's Idiot King 2001.
Wow. So I will admit, based on just musicians I've dealt with in the past, that I tend to divide musically inclined people into thinkers on the one hand and players on the other hand. Michael Manring, I think, really excels in both of those categories. I want to recommend, again, check him out on YouTube. It's like a masterclass in bass performance. I will link to some of these videos relevant to our discussion from the blog post corresponding to this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Check out his work at manthing.com. If you're tired of the instrumental, the jazz-inflected stuff, I've got a couple of rock-pop episodes. Number 32 will be with Bradley Scott of the Bye Bye Blackbirds. 33 will be Asif Ilyas, who led the Canadian pop group Mirror. For 34, I talked to Todd Long, who's been in a number of alt-rock groups, including, most famously, Molly and a little bit with the Verve Pipe. And my most recent interview was with Daniel Ash from Love and Rockets and Bauhaus. So there's a lot to look forward to. I hope you go subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. It would really help me if you could go to our iTunes page and leave a nice rating, nice review. You can go like the Facebook page for this podcast. And if you want to hear my music, go to marklint.com. All right, happy holidays, everybody. As always, keep on musicking. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. 